Hello, it's time to read the Des Moines Register for today, Tuesday, November, March 19th, 2024. All material heard on IRIS is intended solely for the use of Iowans with a print disability. I'm Pat Steele, and my partner at the microphone for the next 90 minutes is Deanna Snyder. For the first hour, we'll cover local and national news from the Des Moines Register and USA Today. Our second hour starts with birthdays and obituaries, followed by opinions, sports, and lifestyle news. We'll wrap up our broadcasts with Dear Abby. Support for today's reading comes from the Des Moines Register and donations from individuals and listeners like you. Learn how you can keep the volunteer voices of Iris going strong at iowaradioreading.org. Now let's take a look at the weather and headlines in today's Des Moines Register. Today we're looking at uh, partly sunny skies. It'll be breezy, warmer than yesterday, a high of 61, the low tonight of 27. Um, Increasing cloudiness overnight. Uh, tomorrow, looking at a high of 43 and a low of 27, and it looks like the rest of the week going to be pretty cool. Uh, highs either in the 40s or upper 30s. Our normal high for this time of year is 50. Uh, normal low is 31. Our record high was set back in 2012, 83 degrees, and record low minus three back in 1923. Sunrise today, 7.19 a.m., and sunset this evening at 7.26. So we're over that point where we get more sunlight than we do uh, darkness uh, this time of year. From the front page of the Des Moines Register, we have an Iowa poll, and it says most opposed belief-based opt-outs for health staff. They'll be your pet forever. So we talked a little bit about the official state horse. And then what to know about today's special election uh, in Des Moines City Council. From the Metro and Iowa section, a Fort Dodge officer kills a man in knife case. And a uh, story about uh, two iconic trails, bike trails here in Iowa, the High Trestle and the Raccoon River Valley Trail. And house fire in Jasper County kills a person. So let's look at our weather and headlines. And now Deanna here is with, I'm sorry, here's Deanna with our first story. <laughs> It's morning, Pat. <laughs> well, the, the, the big picture, the biggest headline is they'll be your pet forever. This Iowa equine breed could become the official state horse. What is it? This is by Kevin Baskins. And it has a wonderful picture of this American cream draft horse stallion. So it all started more than a century ago on a little farm in Iowa with a draft horse mare with the unassuming name of Old Granny. Farmers began to notice something peculiar about Old Granny's offspring. Almost all the foals the Story County mare bore were distinctly cream-colored. Now, more than a century later, Iowa legislators stand poised to designate Old Granny's progeny as the official state horse of Iowa. A bill to make that happen remains alive for possible passage this session. Tess says something about our priorities in, in law enforcement. Not only were draft horses critical to the agricultural development of the state during the pre-tractor era, but the cream horse breed is the only one uh, developed exclusively in the United States, according to the American Cream Draft Horse Association. Today's cream draft horses are a rich cream in color with pink skin, amber eyes, and white manes and tails, with some white markings being desirable. The pink skin trait is important in producing the desired cream color, the association says. Creams are medium to large horses, averaging 15 to 16.3 hands high, which is 5 to 5 to half feet, at the withers. Mares average 1,600 to 1,800 pounds, and stallions can range from 1,800 to 2,000 pounds, according to a description by the Livestock Conservancy. With a worldwide population estimated to be only about 500, the cream horse's status is considered critical, the Conservancy says. Tony Stalter of Zeering is an American cream draft horse owner and an enthusiastic advocate of the breed. Stalter said he first became aware of the cream draft horse decades ago after seeing one on the Avenue of Breeds at the Iowa State Fair. I was always a fan of Roy Rogers as a kid and his Palomino horse, Trigger, and that's what these horses remind me of. With the cream color and the white manes, I knew I had to have one, Stalter said. Knowing that a buddy of his down the road, of his down the road Butch Sowers, 
had some of those horses, he quickly got in contact. I called Butch and I said, I really wanted to buy one of these. And he said, you can't buy one. You have to buy two so that you have a team, Stolzer said. Since then, the two have partnered in raising cream draft horses. Cream draft horses began to rise in popularity and numbers through the first part of the 1900s, leading to the creation of the American Cream Draft Horse Association in 1944. The breed received official recognition by the U.S. Department of Agriculture in 1950. One of the founders of the association, Clarence T. Rearson, known as C.T., who farmed near Radcliffe, began buying all of the mares sired by a stallion named Silver Lace, a great-great-grandson of Old Granny, that was instrumental in perpetuating the breed. After buying the offspring of Silver Lace, Rearson researched and wrote of the American Cream Draft Horse Registry. Rearson's dedication to the horse is commemorated by a billboard on the edge of Radcliffe, proclaiming it to be the cradle of the American Cream Draft Horse. Likewise, a plaque hangs on the barn north of Radcliffe, once used by Rearson, noting his work in legitimization of the breed. His grandson, Claire Rearson, believes his grandfather was attracted to the breed by its color, because that's what he tried to preserve. He said his grandfather, who was not tall, also found it easier to harness the cream drafts, which are smaller than other popular draft horse breeds, such as Belgians and Percherons. Another trait that the cream horses have are noted for is their docile behavior, making them easy to work with and an excellent choice for beginning owners. If you treat them like they're supposed to be treated, they're just like a big dog. They'll be your pet forever, said Claire. On a dreary, wet day in Radcliffe, two of Stolzer's horses, a gelding named Tucker and a stallion with the distinctively Iowa name of Kinnick, stood in their shared stall. If someone petted Tucker, it wasn't long before Kinnick was pushing in for his share of attention and vice versa. As the number of tractors working on the nation's agricultural land grew, draft horse numbers began to dwindle. But a small group of owners kept the small genetic base alive, maintaining survival of the breed, says the American Cream Draft Horse Association. It was reformed in 1982, when a geneticist at the University of Kentucky was able to determine the horses were a distinct breed. Rearson said his grandfather was still relying on his cream draft horses long after tractors replaced pure horsepower on most farms, using them exclusively to raise hay on 40 acres until 1957, the year he died. Wendell Lubke's who raises cream draft horses near Waterloo, said today's breeders feel a responsibility to maintain the integrity of the breed. We don't really sell these horses. We place them. We find owners who are going to help preserve the breed, said Lopkes. While breeders often aim to make animals bigger through selective breeding, Lopkes says the bylaws of the Cream Horse Association set a goal of trying to keep the breed relatively compact shooting for an adult weight of somewhere around 1,600 pounds. With good looks, great personality, and deep Iowa roots, the breed deserves to be elevated to the pedestal of official state horse, owners say. I know my grandpa would look down from heaven and be so happy if the legislature ultimately took that step, said Rearson. <laughs> Pat, back to you. Thank you, Dan. That was an interesting story. I was uh, always a Lone Ranger guy, so Silver was my favorite horse growing up. From the Iowa poll, most opposed belief-based opt-outs for health staff, Republicans and Democrats split on the right of conscience. F. Amanda Tagati uh, wrote this article for the Register. A slim majority of Iowans oppose allowing health care workers to opt out of providing services if they go against their personal religious beliefs, a new Des Moines Register Mediacom Iowa poll finds. Slightly more than half of Iowans, 51%, say they oppose allowing belief-based opt-outs, also known as Senate File 2286, while 46% favor it, 3% are not sure. The Iowa poll, conducted by Selzer and Company, surveyed 804 Iowans from February 25th through the 28th. It has a margin of error of plus or minus 3.5 percentage points. A bill introduced in the Iowa Senate this session would have allowed health care practitioners, institutions, and insurers to exercise a, quote, a right of conscience, unquote, and opt out of providing services 
procedures or other care inconsistent with their ethical, moral, or religious beliefs or principles. Under Senate File 2286, medical providers and practitioners also would be immune from liability for damages arising from their refusal to provide services and protected from legal action or termination. The bill seeks to bar the Iowa Department of Health and Human Services and other licensing entities from reprimanding practitioners who exercise free speech. The legislation also would ban entities from revoking or threatening to revoke those practitioners' licenses or certificates unless they find reasonable doubt in the practitioner's speech and show it caused direct physical harm to a patient. Whistleblowers who suspect their employers are failing to honor right of conscience opt-outs and provide information to authorities would be protected under Senate File 2286. The bill did not come up for floor debate in the Senate by Friday, missing a legislative deadline to move forward. However, it's possible that House or Senate leaders could revive the bill before the session ends this spring. A state law already allows health care workers to decline to perform or assist with an abortion, and they are protected from discrimination because of their refusal. The Iowa poll found most Democrats and Republicans hold opposing views on the issue. 73% of Iowans who identify as Democrats say they oppose allowing health care practitioners to opt out of providing 32% of Republicans do. Nearly two-thirds of Iowa Republicans, 64%, favor allowing opt-outs based on personal beliefs compared with 25% of Democrats who agree. Results among independents more closely mirror the overall view with 55% opposed and 43% in favor. Also noteworthy, 60% of evangelicals support allowing belief-based opt-outs, but the majority drops to 53% among Protestants. A majority of Catholics oppose opt-outs, 57%, as do 74% of those who don't identify with a particular religious belief. Cheryl Yamarillo, a poll respondent who agreed to a follow-up interview with the Register, is one of many Iowa Democrats who oppose belief-based opt-outs for health care providers. Yamarillo, who's 75 and lives in Cedar Falls, said, We have forgotten to separate church and the government. There are laws and protections that are legally set up so that people will get the adequate care and procedures that they need. If you don't believe in those laws of protection, Yamarillo said, then you should not be in that job. Lane Pierce, a 21-year-old Democrat from Cedar Rapids, agrees with Yamarillo. Through his own work experiences, Pierce said he has developed a mindset where you just go in and you do your job. You don't have to like it. If you don't like it, you don't like the way things are going, you go find another job or you change something about it, he continued. With the medical profession, their job is to perform medical procedures. They should do it, the job if it's part of the job. That line of thinking, however, doesn't sit well with Teandra O'Brien, a registered nurse and Republican from Council Bluffs, who said hospitals have used their values to guide and shape their policies and standards. Though O'Brien said she has not come across a situation that conflicted with her morals, the 27-year-old said she supports giving practitioners such as herself a choice. Echoing O'Brien, Christiana Tu, a 21-year-old independent voter from Ames, said she favors the bill. She said she believes women's bodies are sacred and their lives matter. She also believes that life starts at conception. With abortions, Tu said, medical providers such as doctors should have the right to choose whether to participate or not. It's a matter of, like, whose life do we take, she asked. Deanna? Thank you, Pat. Okay, a brief um, article on the front page. What to know about today's special election? Uh, Des Moines residents vote today for an at-large city council candidate to replace now Mayor Connie Boson. The winner will serve the remainder of Boson's term, which runs through January of 2026. So who is running? The candidates are Dr. Claudia Addy, Benjamin Clark, Justin Lewis, Mike Simonson, and Rosemary Smith. Robert Pate's name will be on the ballot, but he has suspended his campaign. The polls are open from 7 a.m. to 8 p.m. 
And you can find your precinct and polling place on the Secretary of State's website, which is sos.iowa.gov. The Polk County Auditor's Office also has a list of polling places, but you need to know your precinct number. So how do I find results? The Des Moines Register will post results on its website on election night and check back to DesMoinesRegister.com after the polls close at 8 p.m. And then there's an article back on page 7 about a protest outside Terrace Hill regarding AEAs. Others slam Reynolds and bigoted policies. This is by Byung M. Byung of the Des Moines Register. Over 100 Iowans from across the state gathered outside the governor's mansion in Des Moines on Saturday, chanting, People over politics! in a demonstration aimed to empower constituents as opposed to state government. Many of the protesters sported signs advocating for Iowa's area education agencies, but all the protesters interviewed said their motivation for demonstrating outside Terrace Hill stems from the same root, dissatisfaction with Iowa's government. Heather Seavers, founder of Advocates for Iowa's Children, organized the protest. Seavers said, we are showing that no matter what legislation comes through, that you can't break our community. We are standing in front of the governor's mansion because we want to say to the governor that we are asking for her to listen to the voice of the people and not continue to push things forward that we're not asking for and that continue to hurt our communities. Seavers said that over the years, Iowans have seen more single belief systems pushed into legislation, citing the governor's proposed changes to AEAs, which provide special education and other services to school districts. Governor Kim Reynolds has said the AEAs need more oversight and has cited poor performance of Iowa's special education students on standardized tests. Reynolds has proposed sending the dollars now spent on AEAs directly to school districts, which could decide whether to contract with other providers for special education and other services or continue to use the AEAs. Democrats and many parents who have spoken at hearings have opposed the changes and praised the work of the AEAs. The Iowa House and Senate are considering bills that take different approaches to overhauling the AEAs. Seavers said, I don't think belief systems should be a part of law. Law is what impacts all people, and the legislation that's been moving forward has been very single belief system, focused on it doesn't a single belief system focused, and it doesn't rep represent uh, Iowans. I'm sorry. Holly Long DeWolf, a resident of Pella and a school social worker for 25 years, came to Des Moines to show support for AEAs and advocate for those who can't do so themselves. Long DeWolf said part of the solution of getting legislators to respect the will of the people is proper leadership. She said, I would prefer our director of education had had a background in education. I have been doing this for 25 years, and there's no way I would take a job to lead this. I know a lot about education, but I don't have an administrator's license, and I absolutely couldn't do that job and wouldn't do that job. Hugo Peretzloa, a 26-year-old resident of Storm Lake, said he came to protest in support of the rights of his LGBTQ plus peers citing Iowa as one of the first few states to legalize same-sex marriage, Peretzloa said politics in Iowa have become more bigoted over time. He said, I just wanted to show much support for my trans folks and everyone who is LGBTQ here in Iowa because Kim Reynolds is making it very hostile state for my LGBT people. He said, I've only known the state of Iowa, so I want to make sure that when I live in this state, I want everyone to feel at home as well. Martin Monroe, a member of Iowa Citizens for Community Improvement, came to protest factory farms. Echoing the sentiments of other protesters, Monroe said empowering people is the key to change. Monroe said, I believe our country has been taken over by mega corporations and billionaires. They're buying everything up and basically destroying democracy in our country. This country is not designed to be run by billionaires. Pat, back to you. Thank you, Dan. And we'll now switch to the Metro and Iowa section. And our, uh, one of the stories here is the what's the fuss about the high trust zone raccoon trail, the gap between Woodward and Perry to be closed in August. Bill Steiden of the Des Moines Register wrote this article. 
There are a couple pictures here. One is we see some bicyclists on the High Trestle Trail, and that's located near Madrid. And then uh, cyclists on the Raccoon River Valley Trail. It's the Waukee Northwest Assistant Boys Cross Country Coach, Eric Wetzel, as he rides his bike, uh, leading his uh, runners, it looks like, on a run on the trail. It's just a segment of a bike trail. Why is this summer's completion of a link between the High Trestle and Raccoon River Valley Trails a big deal? Well, what are the trails? Ragbri isn't the only thing that puts Iowa on the map for biking enthusiasts. Many around the country also cannot also can name not one but two Des Moines Metro bike trails, the High Trestle Trail and the Raccoon River Valley Trail, each widely known for its own superlative features. Why is the High Trestle Trail famous? A converted paved former railroad line, the High Trestle Trail runs north from the Kearney Marsh Preserve in Ankeny, 25 miles to uptown Ankeny, Sheldahl, and Slater, and then west to Madrid and Woodward. Why is it so well known? The answer lies about two and a half miles east of Woodward. It's a bridge that many consider one of the most spectacular spans in any American bicycle trail. Towering 13 stories over the Des Moines River, the half-mile-long High Trestle Bridge is dramatically framed with a series of offset diagonals formed by sculptures representing coal cribs, a structural feature of the underground mines that once dotted the region. At night, the cribs are lit in LED hues. And what's so special about the Raccoon River Valley Trail? Known by its abbreviation, the RRVT is another rail trail. It doesn't have anything quite like the High Trestle Trail's signature bridge, Though colorful lighting adorns the much smaller bridge, the trail crosses in Adel, in Adel. But it has a different standout feature. Minus side trails, it's 72 miles long, and both begin and ends in Waukee. That makes it the longest paved loop trail in the nation. Nowhere else can you park a car, unload your bike, and then log as many miles on an off-road, hard-surface trail without having to either backtrack or have someone pick you up somewhere down the line. The RRVT also was a pioneer of paved U.S. bike trails, and it has been inducted into the National Rail Trail Hall of Fame. So what does a new link mean? Already you can ride exclusively on paved trails from downtown Des Moines to both the RRVT trailhead and to a connection with the High Trestle Trail, where it crosses Orlabor Road on an elaborate new bridge. But ever since the High Trestle Trail opened 13 years ago, there's been a gap between Woodward, its western terminus, and Perry, where riders on the RRVT either turn southeast toward Waukee or continue west to Herndon and then south and southeast to Redfield before turning back toward Waukee. As of August 16th or sooner, if the contractor hired to do the work beats its deadline, the last two miles of that nine-mile gap will disappear under an extension of the High Trestle Trail, though some wags already have christened it the new segment, the High Raccoon Trail, complete with a logo of a raccoon smoking something that's not tobacco. <laughs> with its opening, the combined trails and other existing connections will provide a 120-mile loop featuring the High Trestle's Crown Jewel Bridge. That's not just an added attraction for local riders. It opens a new possibility for bike tourism, enticing visitors with the possibility of a multi-day ride without the hassle of sharing roads with cars. It's also mainly level with no big climbs, and being in the middle of America, it's a great hopping-off point for other rides. What is the potential of the trail? Luke Hoffman, the executive director of the Iowa Bicycle Coalition, says the Group's annual Baycoon ride on the Raccoon River Valley Trail draws 6,000 riders and generates $500,000 in an annual impact. It also hosts the women-oriented pigtails ride on the High Trestle Trail. Hoffman said, The interconnectivity of these two trails will generate even more economic development opportunities for rural revitalization. And Hoffman said that recalling on a solo RRVT ride, He'd met a couple who'd driven from Minnesota just to experience the trail. He said, I think potential is limitless. Dallas County Conservation Director Mike Wallace, who spent years deeply involved in a complicated link-up project, said in a column written for a forthcoming newsletter that he can't wait to see the trail open, adding in an interview that some sort of celebration will be planned. 
He wrote, One of the more satisfying things I've witnessed as we approach the final connection of this project can be summed up by saying, if you build it, they will come. Benefits of this trail extension project include improvements to our trail towns, new economic opportunities for businesses to capitalize on, amenities such as campgrounds adjacent to the trail, and overall improvement of viewscapes. New homes are being built close to the trails because recreational opportunities are important to homeowners when deciding where to live. What would be the itinerary? A rider determined to navigate the big new loop could set out from downtown Des Moines along the Neil Smith Trail, take the Orlaber Gateway Trail into Ankeny, turn north on the High Trestle Trail, cross the big bridge, and conclude the first day in Perry, glamping overnight in luxurious and historic Hotel Pati. The next day would bring a ride around the rest of the loop with stops in towns like Panora, Redfield, and Adel before passing through Waukee. Connections with the Clive Greenbelt, the Walnut Creek, the Bill Riley, and Meredith Trails would return the rider to the downtown starting point. What about camping? With minor detours, tenters would be able to use the trail-connected campgrounds in Dallas County Sportsman Park near Dawson, which also has cabins, below the dam and on the west side of Sailorville Lake, at Adele's Island Park are the Dallas County Fairgrounds, or at Walnut Woods State Park across the Raccoon River in West Des Moines via the soon-to-be-completed Athene Pedestrian Bridge. The campground at a scenic Iowa favorite, Ledger State Park, is an 11-mile, easily ridden road detour from Madrid, and Wallace said a privately owned campground planned along the new link. Are there other attractions? Well, over a dozen breweries and wineries are either on the trails or within a short distance, plus bike-friendly watering holes like Captain Roy's in Des Moines and Madrid's Flat Tire Lounge. There's also ice cream, antiquing, historic sites, and other fun distractions. It's easy to imagine an August tour that starts in Des Moines with visits to the Iowa State Fair, then spend two days on the trail amid the small towns and cornfields. What better way to experience genuine Iowa? Deanna? Thank you, Pat. A couple of short articles from the front page of Metro in Iowa. Fort Dodge officer kills man in knife case. Out-of-control suspect reportedly charged at police. Uh, Dateline Fort Dodge. A police officer shot and killed a male subject armed with two knives after he ran at officers who responded to a distress call Saturday morning at a home in the city, according to a police department news release. At about 8.40 a.m., the officers responded to the distress call at a home on 4th Avenue South, the release said. Officers were told an individual inside was exhibiting out-of-control behavior, which allegedly included the injuring of a dog, the release said. But dispatchers had no information on whether the individual was armed. According to the release, while at the scene, officers were informed there was an active warrant out for the subject for violation of probation and the original charge was domestic abuse. They then entered the home and the subject, armed with two knives, ran at them. That's when an officer on scene discharged his firearm, resulting in the death of the individual, the release said. The names of the person who was killed and the officers involved have not been released. Police released no additional information on Monday. The shooting happened at a large brick home with large windows near the center of Fort Dodge, right off the main road of Fifth Avenue South. It's in a neighborhood of large houses that have been converted into multi-unit apartment buildings. People in the neighborhood who were interviewed by the register on Sunday said they did not know the person who was killed or his family. The Webster County Sheriff's Office, the County Attorney's Office, the Iowa State Patrol, and the Iowa Division of Criminal Investigation were notified and responded. As is standard protocol when law enforcement officers are involved in a shooting, the DCI will lead the investigation. The Fort Dodge Police Department acknowledges the gravity of this incident and recognizes its impact on the community, the release said. We extend our deepest sympathies to all affected parties during this difficult time. We reaffirm our commitment to transparency and accountability. House fire in Jasper County kills a person. Multiple agencies fight to the blaze south of Colfax. This is from Kyle Werner of Des Moines Register. 
One unidentified individual died in a rural home fire in Jasper County on Saturday. Late Saturday night, Jasper County officials received a call about a house fire just south of Colfax. Flames had engulfed the home when firefighters arrived, according to a news release from Jasper County Sheriff's Office. As firefighters worked to extinguish the fire, they learned it was believed that an individual was still inside the house, the release said. Agencies from Baxter, Knoxville, Mingo, Mitchellville, Monroe, Newton, Prairie City, the Iowa State State Fire Marshal's Office, and the Jasper County Sheriff's Office worked with the Colfax Fire Department through the night to put out the fire and search for that person, the release said. But they were slowed by the fire's heat and the need for heavy equipment to remove debris. At 10.45 a.m. on Sunday, officials did find the body of an individual in the basement of the home. According to the release, the body was taken to the Iowa State Examiner's Office in Ankeny for identification and autopsy. The cause of the fire is under investigation. Pat. Thank you, Deanna. Elsewhere from the Metro Iowa section, May to hold highest risk for tornadoes this year. This is a story written by uh, Kate Keeley of the Register. Spring started with a vengeance in Iowa in 2023. March had more tornadoes than any other month in Iowa during that year. The spring season may be the opposite. Long-range forecasters warn of a slow start to severe weather season that will escalate as the year progresses. Springtime weather patterns will contribute to severe weather throughout Tornado Alley, covering states from Texas through Nebraska, according to AccuWeather. Senior meteorologist Paul Pastelock said, the second half of spring is jumping out to us. And he talked about the upcoming tornado activity. Last year's weather season broke norms for severe weather season. Last March, 206 tornadoes swept through the country. This is more than double the monthly historical average of 80, according to AccuWeather. The severe weather threat can be more frequent in the Midwest, Tennessee, and Ohio valleys later March into May, while the northern plains and northeast can have an increase in May, according to Pastelock. The tornadoes this year are also expected to near historic averages of 1,225. AccuWeather predicts anywhere from 1,250 to 1,375 tornadoes across the country in 2024, That's a downturn from the 1,423 reported in 2023. When is the highest risk for tornadoes in Iowa? The month of May will have the highest risk for tornadoes in Iowa due to a change in weather patterns from the western central Gulf of Mexico, causing higher dew points and humidity. Pastelak said in an email to the register, In addition, the southern storm track impacting the Gulf Coast, which lifts north and meeting up with the northern storm track, putting the central plains and Midwest in a good path for strong, severe weather events. Severe weather can still occur throughout March and April. From March 24th to March 29th, Pastelock predicted potential severe weather, including damaging wind, gusts, hail, and some tornadoes, while April could have a high frequency of storms or cold fronts. In 2023, 72 tornadoes touched down in Iowa, according to the National Weather Service. Last year had a little more than 20 tornadoes above normal. 2023 was also the earliest start to tornado season since the start of tornado recording back in 1950, with two touching down on January 16, 2023, in eastern Iowa, according to the National Weather Service Iowa Tornado Summary. March was the peak month for tornadoes in Iowa last year. There were 25 tornadoes that swept different areas of the state that month. In Iowa, there were 11 injuries due to tornadoes in 2023. Zero casualties occurred last year because of tornadoes, according to the National Weather Service. May could be a critical month for tornadoes. Why severe weather could increase as the year progresses. El Nino is is predicted to conclude in the next few months. The El Nino season caused below average tornadoes and hail. There could be more activity in Tornado Alley during April and into May, according to AccuWeather. The temperatures of the Gulf of Mexico are near to slightly above historical averages, which can dictate severe weather season. Pastelak said, 
If the wa water is slower to warm in March, this could hold back the number of severe weather reports in March, especially compared to March of 2023. As the Gulf of Mexico temperature increases later into spring, May could be a critical month for tornadoes. Pasluck told the Register in an email on Friday, the season overall for the spring for the entire nation will average near normal on severe weather reports, but slightly below average on tornadoes, mainly due to the later start of high-frequency tornado events. The number of tornadoes can pick up during the summer and the late-season severe weather period in the fall. Deanna? Thank you, Pat. All right, fertilizer spills leave a 50-mile trail of dead fish. This is from Jared Strong of the Iowa Capsule Dispatch. State conservation officials have found no living fish in the East Nishinabotna River, south of Red Oak, the result of a massive fertilizer spill at a farmer's cooperative. The only living fish were discovered near Hamburg in far southwest Iowa, downstream of where the river joins with the West Nishinabotna, said John Lorenzen, a fisheries biologist for the Iowa Department of Natural Resources. However, the handful of surviving carp he saw appeared to be in the process of dying. He said, I've never dealt with a situation like this before. He evaluated sections of about 50 river miles over the course of four days to determine the scope of the fish kill. He had not yet fully tallied the estimated number of dead fish on Friday, but noted that there were also numerous dead frogs, snakes, mussels, and earthworms. The spill is the result of someone at New Cooperative leaving open a hose valve that leaked about 265,000 gallons of liquid nitrogen fertilizer, said Wendy Wittrock, a senior environmental specialist for the DNR. The leak is believed to have started March 9th, and was discovered and stopped by a co-op employee March 11th, she said. The company might be subject to large fines and restitution fees for the dead fish. The effects of the river contamination continued into Missouri, where the Nishnabotna flows about another 10 miles until it reaches the Missouri River. Lorenzen said conservation officials in that state discovered dead fish near the mouth of the river. In smaller concentrations, the fertilizer contamination can result in a lack of oxygen that kills fish, Lorenzen said. However, he went on, this was such a large amount of chemical, it more likely killed the fish from acute toxicity, killing cells at the gills. Lab tests to determine the severity of the contamination were still pending Friday. So did the turtles die too? The lasting impact on the fish population is not yet clear. Lorenzen said many of the game fish, such as catfish and walleye, are likely still in the Missouri River, where they stay during colder months until returning to the Nishnabotna in the spring. Large numbers of small fish, which the bigger fish feed upon, have died, but those populations can be restored by fish that survived upstream from the spill or in the numerous tributaries that were not affected by it. It is possible that the fertilizer killed turtles, too, that burrowed into the sediment on the river bottom for the winter. Lorenzen plans to return to the area in late spring to see whether turtle carcasses have floated to the surface. The DNR recommends that residents with wells near the river have their drinking water tested for nitrate, a service that is free throughout uh, county environment health departments. Pat, back to you. Thank you, Dan. And that concludes the Metro section of paper. So we'll return to the main section or front page of the Des Moines Register and on page 3A. A rate cut looks unlikely at a Fed meeting. Board cautious despite hopes for cheaper loans. Christopher Rugabar of the Associated Press wrote this article. Across the United States, many people are eagerly anticipating the Federal Reserve's first cut to its benchmark interest rate this year. Prospective home buyers hope for lower mortgage rates. Wall Street traders envision higher stock prices. Consumers are looking for a break on credit card debt at record high interest rates. Not to mention President Joe Biden, whose re-election campaign would likely benefit from an economic jolt stemming from lower borrowing rates. Yet Chair Jerome Powell and his fellow Fed officials are expected to play it safe when they meet this week, keeping their rate unchanged for a fifth straight time and signaling that they still need further evidence that inflation is returning sustainably to their 2% target. 
The Fed's cautious approach illustrates what's unusual about this round of potential rate cuts. Vincent Reinhardt, chief economist at Dreyfus Mellon and a former Fed economist, notes that the Fed typically cuts rates quickly as the economy deteriorates in an often futile effort to prevent a recession. But this time the economy is still healthy. The Fed is considering rate cuts only because inflation has steadily fallen from a peak of 9.1% in June 2022. As a result, it is approaching rate cuts the way it usually does rate hikes, slowly and methodically, while trying to divine the economy's direction from often conflicting data. Reinhardt said, The Fed is driving events, not events driving the Fed. That's why this task is different than others. The central bank's policymakers had said after the last meeting in January that they needed greater confidence that inflation was cooling decisively toward their 2% target. Since then, the government has issued two inflation reports that show the pace of price increases remaining sticky high. In most respects, the U.S. economy remains remarkably healthy. Employers keep hiring. Unemployment remains low. The stock market is hovering near record highs, and inflation has plummeted from its highs. Yet average prices remain much higher than they were before the pandemic, a source of unhappiness for many Americans for which Republicans have sought to pin the blame on Biden. Including volatile food and energy costs, so-called core prices rose at a monthly pace of 0.4% in both January and February, a pace which is far higher than is consistent with the Fed's inflation target. Compared with a year earlier, core prices rose 3.8% in February. Core prices are considered a good signal of where inflation is likely headed. But in February, a measure of housing costs slowed, a notable trend because housing is among the stickiest price categories that the government tracks. At the same time, more volatile categories like clothing, used cars, and airline tickets drove up prices in February, and they may well reverse course in coming months. Seth Carpenter, chief global economist at Morgan Stanley and also a former Fed economist, said, Nothing about those two data points make you feel substantially better about inflation reaching the Fed's target. But it's not at all enough to make you change your view on the fundamental direction of travel for inflation. Indeed, several Fed officials have said in recent speeches that they expect inflation to keep declining this year, though likely more slowly than in 2023. The Fed has also built in some expectation that price increases would ease only gradually this year. In December, it projected that core inflation would reach 2.4% by the end of 2024. That's not far from its current 2.8% according to the Fed's preferred measure. On Wednesday, the Fed's policymakers will update their quarterly economic projections, which are expected to repeat their December forecast for three rate cuts by the end of 2024. Still, would take only two of the 19 Fed officials to change their forecast to one fewer rate cut for the central bank's overall projection to downshift to just two rate cuts for 2024. Some economists expect that to happen given that inflation has remained persistent at the start of this year. The Fed's benchmark rate stands at about 5.4%, the highest level in 23 years after a series of 11 rate hikes that were intended to curb the worst inflation for decades. They have made borrowing much more expensive for consumers and businesses. Like the Fed, other major central banks are keeping rates high to ensure that they have a firm handle on consumer price spikes. In Europe, pressure is building to lower borrowing costs as inflation drops and economic growth has stalled, unlike in the United States. The European Central Bank's leader hinted this month that a possible rate cut wouldn't come until June, while the Bank of England isn't expected to open the door to any imminent cut at its meeting Thursday. Most economists expect the Fed to implement its first rate cut at its June meeting, which would mean that in May the Fed would signal such a coming move. By June, the policymakers will have in hand three more inflation readings and three more jobs reports. Sarah House, a senior economist at Wells Fargo, said that the 
timetable leaves plenty of time for inflation to resume its downward path. A rate reduction would likely lead, over time, to lower rates for mortgages, auto loans, credit cards, and many business loans. She said they certainly need to see something better than the past couple months, but they can get it. Deanna? Thank you, Pat. All right, Biden and Netanyahu discuss Gaza aid. This is a U.N. report that says famine is imminent in the north. Article is written by John Bacon and George Ortiz from the USA Today. President Joe Biden spoke Monday with Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu for the first time in more than a month amid rising tensions between the two leaders over how Israel has conducted its war with Hamas. The call marked the first time they have spoken since Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer, the highest-ranking Jewish elected official in the U.S., called last week for Israel to hold new elections to replace Netanyahu. Biden spoke with Netanyahu to discuss the latest developments in Israel and Gaza, including the situation in Rafah and efforts to surge humanitarian assistance to Gaza, said the White House. Netanyahu released a video saying they also discussed Israel's commitment to achieving all the goals of the war, including the elimination of Hamas, the release of all his hostages, and the long-term security for Israel. Earlier Monday, Netanyahu appeared to slam the Biden administration and some Democrats for suggesting he is a roadblock to peace and does not represent the best interests of his country. But he said Israelis are unified behind his goal of crushing Hamas and freeing the militant-held hostages. The description from Washington is you have an outlier prime minister with some extreme fringe groups, and that's what's driving the policy. False, said Netanyahu, while speaking to an American-Israel Public Affairs Committee delegation in in Jerusalem. I would say deliberately false. They know it's false, but that falsehood is perpetrated, and it's wrong. White House National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan confirmed Monday that Marwan Issa, deputy commander of Hamas's military wing and one of the architects of the October 7th attacks, was killed by Israel. The presumed death of Issa, Hamas's number three leader in Gaza, had been reported since shortly after the Israeli military bombed an underground compound that he used on March 9th. Israeli officials have hinted at the possibility without publicly acknowledging it. Sullivan became the first high-level official to announce Issa's demise in a briefing with reporters addressing Biden's call with Netanyahu. Hamas's number three, Marwan Issa, was killed in an Israel operation last week, said Sullivan. The rest of the top leaders are in hiding, likely deep in the Hamas tunnel network, and justice will come for them, too. Another top Hamas operative, Fake Mabu, was killed Monday in another Israeli military raid on the Shifa hospital compound in Gaza, where Palestinian officials say tens of thousands of people have been sheltering. The Israeli military said Hamas militants fired on them from the compound, and Mabu, head of operations in Hamas's internal security force, was killed in an ensuing exchange of gunfire. The Israeli military said the death of Staff Sergeant Matan Vinogradov, age 20, in fighting early Monday, raised the death toll of its ground troops to 250 since the ground offensive began on October 7th. The Gaza Health Ministry says more than 31,000 Palestinians have died. Israel says more than 13,000 of them were Hamas militants. Famine is imminent in the northern Gaza Strip and is projected to affect more than 200,000 Palestinians between now and May, the UN World Food Program warned in a report released Monday. The agency said about 70% of the 300,000 milk Palestinians still residing in northern Gaza face catastrophic hunger. The almost complete lack of access humanitarian aid organizations face in northern Gaza will likely compound the problems of hunger, health care, water, and sanitation, said the report. The famine threshold for household acute food insecurity has already been far exceeded, the report says. Northern Gaza, including Gaza City, was the first target of the invasion, 
and entire neighborhoods had been obliterated. It is now the epicenter of Gaza's humanitarian catastrophe, with many residents reduced to eating animal feed. International aid groups were quick to confirm the WFP's report. Chada Doyen McKenna, CEO of the Internal International Aid Organization Mercy Corps, said it sheds light on the undeniable extent of starvation and deprivation for civilians, resulting from more than five months under siege and bombardment. She described Israel's denial of access as a grave violation of international humanitarian law. She said, today's report lays bare that people across Gaza are suffering from starvation and are truly desperate as they seek any way possible to feed their families. Another aid group, Oxfam, issued a statement accusing Israel of using starvation as a weapon of war and causing these horrifying figures by deliberating, deliberately blocking the food aid from getting into Gaza. Meanwhile, Jordan Foreign Minister Ayman el-Safadi on Monday called for Israel to be prosecuted for war crimes. He accused the Israelis of starving children to death and taking more than two million of Palestinians hostage in Gaza. EU foreign policy chief Joseph Borrell on Monday accused Israel of using starvation as a weapon of war. He called on Israel to open more land crossings and for greater efficiency at the ones already available. Israel has reported has repeatedly blamed the delays on distribution issues created by the UN and other agencies aid agencies. Israeli Foreign Minister Israel Katz said Monday that it was time for Burrell to stop blaming Israel and to recognize the nation's right to self-defense. He said Israel allows extensive humanitarian aid into Gaza by land, air, and sea for anyone willing to help. He wrote that on a social media post. Pat, back to you. Thank you, Deanna. Uh, Trump posting full bond is impossible, as lawyers say. The former president owes about $454 million in civil fraud. Judgment, this is a story from USA Today. Facing a fast-approaching deadline, former President Donald Trump hasn't been able to get a bond in a civil fraud case to shield his assets while he appeals a $454 million judgment, his lawyer told an appeals court in New York on Monday. Trump would need nearly $1 billion in cash, or cash equivalents, to post the bond while also keeping his businesses running and paying other debts, they said in a court filing. The lawyers were referring to a judgment of about $464 million against Trump and his co-defendants in the case. Nearly all of the judgment, about $454 million, applies only to Trump and some of his businesses. New York trial judge Arthur Engeron entered that judgment in late February against Trump and his businesses for ill-gotten gains, plus interest after ruling that they got hundreds of millions of dollars in loan and insurance benefits by fraudulently inflating the value of Trump's assets. Trump has appealed that ruling. However, as things currently stand, he must post a bond or deposit to prevent New York Attorney General uh, Letitia James from collecting until his appeal is over. The Trump team is pleading for the court to block James from collecting on the judgment, which could begin next week, without requiring the presumptive Republican presidential nominee to post a bond or deposit for the full amount. Despite scouring the market, we have been unsuccessful in our effort to obtain a bond for the judgment amount for defendants for the simple reason that obtaining an appeal bond for $464 million is a practical impossibility under the circumstances presented, Trump's lawyers said. A single judge on the appeals court already rejected Trump's request to post a bond of $100 million instead of the full $454 million. His lawyers are continuing to plead with that court for help. James has been eyeing Trump's property and pledged to pursue Trump's assets if he can't post a bond or deposit to cover the judgment. James told ABC News last month, We are prepared to make sure that the judgment is paid to New Yorkers, and yes, I look at 40 Wall Street, which is the Trump building in Manhattan, each and every day. 
Trump's lawyers argued that obtaining such cash through a fire sale of real estate holdings would inevitably result in massive, irrecoverable losses, textbook irreparable injury. Trump's court losses are beginning to mount. He was also hit with an $83.3 million verdict in January in a defamation case brought by advice columnist E. Jean Carroll. He managed to post a bond of nearly $92 million to block collection in that case. Deanna? Thank you, Pat. All right, with foes dead or in jail, Putin wins in a landslide. This is from Kim Jelmagard from USA Today out of Helsinki. Vladimir Putin won his fifth term as Russia's president with a record number of votes, Russia's Central Election Commission said Monday, confirming exit polls that showed the country's longest-serving leader since Joseph Stalin won a landslide in an election in which he faced no credible opposition and cracked down on free speech. With nearly 100% of all precincts counted, Putin received 87.29% of the vote, Central Election Commission Chief Ella Pamflova said. She said nearly 76 million voters cast their ballots for Putin, his highest vote tally ever. Putin hailed the results as a clear indication of Russia's trust and hope in him. However, his many critics saw them as another illustration of the preordained nature of the election. Criticism of Putin or his war in Ukraine has been criminalized. Independent media outlets have been closed down. Putin's fiercest political foe, Alexei Navalny, died in an Arctic prison last month. Other Putin critics are in jail or in exile. Germany called the vote a pseudo-election, and Washington described it as neither free nor fair. Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky said Putin was sick with power and is doing everything in his power to rule forever. British Foreign Secretary David Cameron wrote on X, This is not what free and fair elections look like. The elections took place in an ever-shrinking political space, said Joseph Borrell, the European Union's top foreign policy official, which has resulted in an alarming increase of violations of civil and political rights and precluded many candidates from running, including all those opposed to Russia's illegal war of aggression, deprived Russian voters of a real choice, and heavily limited their access to accurate information. Some of Russia's allies sent congratulations, including Cuba, North Korean leader Kim Jong-un, and the presidents of Honduras, Nicaragua, and Venezuela, as well as leaders of the Tajikistan and Uzbekistan. In a news conference Sunday, Putin said he would press on with his invasion of Ukraine. He also claimed Russians... Russia's democracy was more legitimate than the U.S.'s, where he said you can buy a vote for $10. <laughs> Pat, back to you. Thank you, Deanna. We'll uh, switch now to the Nation World Extra on page uh, 7 of this. We have a short story, which will get us to birthday time. Uh, Equinox marks the start of the astronomical spring. Spring is almost here, officially at least. The vernal equinox arrives on Tuesday, marking the start of the spring season for the Northern Hemisphere. But what does that actually mean? Here's what to know about how we split up the year using the Earth's orbit. As the Earth travels around the Sun, it does so at an angle. For most of the year, the Earth's axis is tilted either toward or away from the Sun. That means the Sun's warmth and light fall unequally on the northern and southern halves of the planet. During the equinox, the Earth's axis and its orbit line up so that both hemispheres get an equal amount of sunlight. The word equinox comes from two Latin words meaning equal and night. That's because on the equinox, day and night last almost the same amount of time, though one may get a few extra minutes depending on where you are on the planet. The northern hemisphere's spring or vernal equinox can land between March 19th and the 21st, depending on the year, its fall or uh, autumnal autumnal equinox can land between September 21st and the 24th. The solstice marks the time during the year when the Earth is at its most extreme tilt toward or away from the sun. This means the hemispheres are getting very different amounts of sunlight and days and nights are at their most unequal. The solstice falls between June 20th and 22nd. 
Meanwhile, at the winter solstice, the northern hemisphere is leaning away from the sun, leading to the shortest day and longest night of the year, and the winter solstice falls between December 20th and December 